Uh, welcome to the Innovation of Work podcast. Today we have Doug Ponsler from Cove. Uh, we're very excited to have you today, Doug. A, a little bit of a bio here, but I'm not going to give it all away because that's part of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Doug is Chairman and Managing Director for Cove, the Center of Visual Excellence, Visual Expertise, launched in 2018 by the Toledo Museum of Art. Cove is dedicated to the application of visual literacy for industrial and service applications with an emphasis on safety. In his leadership role, he's responsible for all aspects of the enterprise, thought leadership, product development, and customer satisfaction. Uh, Doug, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, Robin. It's great to be with you. Well, you know, thank you uh, again for your time. We're excited to talk to you today because you have such an interesting journey uh, to, to EHS, um, which I didn't give away in your bio. Could you, could you share a bit about your origin story and, and how you got into EHS? Yeah, ha happy to do that. I, I guess in some respects, I try to keep that a secret, but, uh, <laughs> but I'll let the cat out of the bag. Um, you know, I'm actually an accountant by training. I graduated, um, a long time ago, uh, from Miami University with a degree in accounting and, um, went to work for an industrial company uh, at the time in cost accounting, but I only spent about four, four and a half years in that accounting role. And from there, I went into various roles in operations. And um, uh, so, you know, the big secret is, here's an accountant that eventually finds himself, you know, running uh, an environmental health and safety and operations sustainability organization. And, um, but, you know, it was a, Fantastic career working for two Fortune 500 companies. Um, I had the opportunity to have experience beyond the accounting function in materials management, in factory management, in purchasing, in sourcing. Um, uh, transition from the original company, which was Eaton Corporation, eventually Eaton Corporation, uh, to Owens Corning. And at Owens Corning, I was in two primary roles: vice president of global sourcing and also uh, the last uh, nine years, Vice President of Environmental Health and Safety. So, um, and I would tell you um, just uh, from an editorial standpoint, um, the last nine years as Vice President of Environmental Health and Safety was you know, some of the best career years that I had. There's uh, no more important work you know, than working to keep you know, our people protected, ourselves protected, uh, the environment protected, and being able to um, do more good than harm in terms of what you come to work to do each and every day. That's wonderful. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and that is, when you think about a transition, that's a pretty big career transition. Can you talk a little bit about how you navigated that? Um, maybe some of the expertise and support you sought out to, to help you with that transition? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think I was very fortunate in that you know, both companies that I worked for over my, my career that, you know, almost was 40 years long were great organizations and had great people in them. And uh, so as I transitioned from, you know, one area of expertise to another area that I really had no expertise in, it really boils down to sort of two things. And that is number one, your personal aptitude to just simply learn. You know, you have to invest your time and, and your effort into really understanding what is this function about? How does it operate? Uh, you know, um, what's required in terms of the daily tasks and activities in order to be able to achieve the objectives um, of the organization? And the second, and this is maybe more important than the first, is 
you know, just reliance upon the people that, that are in that organization. Yeah. Um, you know, the people that really know what needs to get done are the people that are doing it today. And uh, they have great thoughts and ideas, and sometimes they just don't have the mechanisms to be able to activate them. And, uh, and I think if, um, if you're a good listener and you take the time to understand first before, you know, maybe planning yourself uh, in the ground in terms of what you think ought to be done, right. uh, I think it serves you very well. Yeah. I think, too, you know, when you think about listening, it is uh, being open to uh, maybe changing those preconceived notions that you might have, which is sometimes it's, it can be rather hard to do, um, but, but so important. Com completely agree with you. I think, you know, one of the other things, you know, that we talked about kind of in the, in the pre-interview is, is some of the organizations that were instrumental for you. Uh, we talked about NSC, we talked about the Campbell Institute. Could you talk a little bit about how you, how you found those organizations, how you got involved in the importance of that for maybe for you personally, and even for other professionals today? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the models for me in terms of personal learning and also really trying to understand, um, you know, what needs to be done in an organization is to not only look inside um, and examine the plans and examine the, the goals and the objectives that have already been established, but also look outside and, uh, and you know, what are other people, you know, in your particular function or what you're trying to uh, the area you're trying to make accomplishments in, what are they talking about? What are they focused on? What are they doing? Right. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do exactly the same thing. Their, their situations might be different. Their challenges might be different. But it's always good to get a sense of, you know, what is the best in class sort of activities that are going on? And if other people are doing them, then we probably ought to think about whether we should be doing them too. Yeah, absolutely. Or not is a rationale for, for why that would be the case. So, you know, sort of using, you know, the environmental health and safety and operations sustainability work um, that I did prior to retirement, one of the first things that I did was uh, connect with the National Safety Council. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I went to the, my very first Congress was, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2008 or 2009. And uh, I knew nothing about, you know, really what the National Safety Council was all about, but they had, they had a reputation, they had presence, they had this big event, you know, National Safety Congress and Expo. And, uh, you know, I headed off to, I think it was actually maybe Indianapolis. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's uh, great. Indianapolis or Atlanta, I don't, I don't recall for sure. And um, went about meeting people, attended sessions, uh, again, listened to what they were talking about and, and whether we were talking about the same thing in terms of what we were trying to accomplish. Right. It was there I ran across John Doney and, um, and several other National Safety Council members in this, uh, this uh, sort of fetus of an organization at the time called the Campbell Institute. Yeah. And uh, there I found a, a group of peers that were just incredible in terms of their willingness to share, uh, their willingness to challenge, their willingness to quite honestly, invest in me in a way as a peer that helped me go back to Owens Corning and um, know the sort of questions I should be asking. Right. Oh, that's amazing. So, but, but your journey with, with NSC and the Campbell Institute didn't end there with, with you learning and creating uh, those really strong relationships with experts and 
um, you know, folks and companies who are really trying to move the needle. You, you went further than that. Can you talk a little bit more about, um, you know, where you, where you ended up, uh, you know, collaborating in a more deep way with the Campbell Institute? Yeah, I'll um, maybe uh, three, at three different levels, I can kind of talk about that. I think, you know, first of all, I'm kind of an all in guy. I, I try, if I'm going to be connected to something, you know, I try to really be connected. I try to make sure that that I'm contributing in a positive way um, to the best of my ability because I'm certainly receiving value from that participation. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't do you any good to just, you know, sign a member role and read an, an email occasionally. It's, right. you know, you really have to be at the table to get the most value out of what's going on. And and that really culminated with, um, I was on the, uh, ended up being on the board of directors for the National Safety Council um, and I also was um, chairman of the Campbell Institute for three years. Uh, second chairman, we're now, Campbell Institute is now on its third chairman since its right. beginning. And, um, and that was, again, some of the most satisfying, not only work, but also relationships, um, you know, that I've been associated with and those continue today. Yeah. Now, I think that's amazing in the fact that, again, your, your journey is so unique that you, know, you walked into this world uh, of, of, of HSE, EHS and found uh, you know, that kind of collaboration and then ended up in leadership roles not long after you made the, the cutover to, to this new world, uh, which, is, which is really, I think it's super impressive. Could you talk a little bit about maybe some of of the learnings from those experiences with, with the National Safety Council, Campbell Institute, and kind of what you brought back into Owens Corning as a, as a result? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I realized pretty quickly, and, I, and anyone that's worked in this function for any period of time, you know, is gonna recognize, you know, sort of two primary channels of activity that goes on in this space. One I would classify as, as really, procedural, tactical, the rules and the regulations of what needs to happen and, and what right. needs to get done. And those are important. Um, there's also a dimension of the work that we do uh, in environmental health and safety as we do in most other functions. And that's around leadership. It's around the idea of, of um, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? You know, what's the culture that we're trying to create? Or if we have that culture, you know, how do we build and continue to advance that? And that's really all about the engagement of the people in the organization. Um, you know, there's some things that you can kind of set in a corner and, and do on behalf of the company with an engagement might not quite be as important. Right. But, you know, when we talk about environmental health and safety, man, it is everybody, you know, oh, yeah. makes a difference, yeah. you know, in, in what we do and how we do it. And right. um, so the ability to engage people around what it is we're trying to accomplish is just, you know, just absolutely, absolutely critical. Yeah, it makes all the difference in the world. I think, um, you know, and as we kind of talked, uh, again, kind of pre-interview, we talked a lot about how leadership has really been kind of core to your career and, and uh, really kind of a guiding principle for you and, and, and have strong beliefs and um, around that and a, a theme and a focus for you. Could you, describe a little bit more of your views on leadership, uh, maybe in a little bit more detail and, and how you applied those in, in those leadership roles as you, uh, you know, we're way beyond the transition to EHS, but, but actually in an acting role trying to drive change. 
Yeah, I think, you know, again, as, as I said in the beginning, I mean, I was fortunate to work for two companies that had great people. And, um, you know, and as I transitioned from an area of expertise that I had by education to areas that I needed to lead that I didn't have, you know, that, um, uh, that expertise through education, yeah. you know, I really had to rely upon the people that were in the organization already to be able to teach me what was important and give me their views about you know, how things are operating and how they need to operate in order to be able to advance our, uh, you know, the journey that we're on. Right. And uh, you know, by and large, I mean, people know. I mean, they, they have ideas, they have thoughts. Sometimes they're not fully informed by everything that they need to be informed by. So while they might have a, an idea, it may not be an idea that actually is executable. Or it's, right. it's an idea that just maybe won't work in the context of what's trying to be accomplished. I think that's, you know, kind of less the time than more the time that that's true. So, you know, getting out and listening, um, hearing what people have to say. Right. Um, I think it's, there's, there's a few things to me that, that are absolutely critical. And that is, number one, if we expect people to contribute, they have to know, you know, what the why we're trying to accomplish what it is that we're trying to accomplish exactly and and what's the bigger picture and and you know ultimately you know what defines success um because if they understand the bigger picture then they have the opportunity to be creative they have the opportunity to be innovative in the what and the how um, right. and i think too often as leaders you know it's easy for us to sort of jump into here's what i want you to do Right. And people are, you know, left behind in terms of, okay, well, I understand what you want me to do. I just don't understand why you want me to do it. Right. And what we're trying to accomplish, you know, at the top. So, you know, if we're able to, to explain that, if we're able to engage people around it, then there's flexibility often in terms of how you accomplish what it is you're there to accomplish, what things you actually do. Um, but you got to open up, you know, sort of the, the lens to, um, give people enough context that they're able to, to contribute their ideas as well. Absolutely. I think, you know, a second thing is that, um, you know, there's nothing like the right people and nothing like having the right people uh, in making the right growth and development investments in those people. Oh yeah. And when I say right people, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, right people are defined exactly by a set of technical expertise or something like that. You know, often they can grow into that if they don't necessarily have it today. Right. Um, you know, it's just people that um, you know are creative. They're innovative. Mm -hmm. They're committed. You know, they're they're um, they want to win as much as what you want to win. Yeah. And um, uh, and those are the people that you want to circle yourselves with in order to be able to you know sort of take the hill that that you need to take. Yeah. And then maybe the last component is just you know accountability is important. I mean. Uh, you know, you have to get stakes in the ground and you have to be able to know, you know, where do I need to be at a certain point in time in order to be able to, to make the decisions about what will be necessary to get you there. Right. And um, uh, so you can't ever take your foot off the pedal from an accountability standpoint. Um, but if you do that in an engaging way, then, you know, you can have iterative processes that, that allow you to uh, do the right things. No, absolutely. No, that all makes... Uh so much sense and it resonates and you're absolutely right it's easy as leaders to get caught up in what you need to have done versus making sure everyone understands why 
And um, I think, you know, that ties so well into safety and having frontline workers or just all the workforce understand why you need them to, to do what they're doing. So that kind of, let's, let's, let's parlay this into kind of uh, the next step in this conversation, which uh, brings us back to what you're doing today. So, you know, after, after Owens Corning, you've embarked on a brand new journey uh, <laughs> with a very interesting opportunity. And from, you know, from our discussions, it, it would, it would appear that it really leverages everything that you've done up to this point and leverages you know, your expertise in, in leadership and in, in EHS and uh, really kind of driving change. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, Cove? What is Cove and, and how did that get started? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I love talking about Cove. <laughs> uh, no doubt about it. Um, yeah, Cove, um, uh, I'll step back and, and let me begin with, you know, why is this important, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sort of thing. You know, what we do in safety um, and the processes that that we utilize begin with seeing. I mean, it's hard to think of a safety process, whether it's hazard recognition, hazard identification, incident investigation, uh, observations, uh, you know, you name it. You know, whatever we do in safety, you know, it begins with going out and looking at something. Right. And, you know, sort of seeing what's there in order to be able to develop um, uh, an interpretation and develop meaning about what it is that you're looking at so you know what to do right and um, um, and it was very um, uh, kind of down the road in our in our journey at Owens Corning on hazard uh, recognition you know that uh, really helped fuel the some of the safety improvements that we saw as an organization um, that we wanted to figure out how could we go to the next step you know what was necessary for us to do and we had ideas about that and our people had had thoughts about what we were doing and how we could improve that, and and uh, it was in that time frame that that um, I heard about this idea of learning to see. Right. And I'd really I'd really never thought about that before. That you know even though seeing is so fundamental to what it is that we do, you know I can look back at my history and never had I had an, an opportunity or found an opportunity or was informed about an opportunity that I actually could improve when I look at something, what I actually see. Right. Um, and that's quite honestly what visual literacy is all about. It's what you see, what it means, and what you do as a result of that. Um, the idea that it came out of art education and had not been applied to, you know, the work that we do in industry in general and specifically to safety was what the real opportunity was right and you know if we if we think about our own personal experiences you know how many times have we been involved you know in some form of an incident or whatever and either we ourselves or the people who we work with and around you'll hear someone say you know i've walked by that a thousand times and i never mm -hmm. seen it or at home you know we'll lay our car keys somewhere different oh, than where we laid day. the last time <laughs> <laughs> and we keep walking by them and we don't see them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was a, a bit of a, uh, of a triangulation for me that, okay, if there's a way that we can actually see better mm -hmm. and we have this realization that we're constantly missing things. And if you put that in the context of incidents that occur within organizations, yeah. you know, the worst sort of way to learn about a hazard that we have not yet discovered yeah. is to be informed by an incident that just happened. 
Yeah. Because there's none of us that want to put our hand up and say, I volunteer to be the next injury. No. Uh, so that the organization can learn the next thing that needs to be fixed. Yeah. So we did some uh, investigation uh, with the Toledo Museum of Art, who had expertise in this area. And, uh, and it was through that investigation and through some initial you know, training that, that we went through that this realization that we don't see as well as we think we do, mm-hmm. that there are tools and there's techniques that we can apply to improve that, that led us to integration of some of those concepts inside of our hazard recognition and also our incident investigation process. Right. As we begin to share that with other companies, largely through Campbell and, and the National Safety Council, other companies started to be sort of interested in the same thing. I mean, it was still a little strange. Right. <laughs> to, you know, to think about, you know, I could go to an art museum and I could receive training that would help my safety program. Right. Um, and safety performance. Um, but, you know, the more people thought about it, the more sense that yeah. it started to make. It, it makes absolute sense. Yeah. So likewise, the museum was thinking about it in that same context that, you know, if there's a way for, you know, this component of what's resided in art education for decades, if not centuries. Right. Uh, if there's a way for that to be relevant to industry um, in an impactful way, um, then we should be doing that. Yeah. Um, we should be we should be providing that opportunity. Um, so as I retired from Owens Corning, uh, that was about the same time that the museum was gathering momentum around figuring out how to, you know, sort of take this into the marketplace and help companies be more effective. Um, you know, I became part of that effort, and uh, we ended up forming Cove, the Center of Visual Expertise. Uh, we're a little over what, maybe two years and three months old now, four months old, and um, and it's been an experience of a of a lifetime. Could you talk a little bit? I mean, that's just it's such a fascinating journey. And uh, could you could you talk a little bit more about what does it mean uh, when someone gets involved in Cove? What what are the offerings that you have? Um, you know, could you talk about maybe uh, success stories or some case studies and examples to help us understand a little bit more about kind of what does it mean to help people see and what are some of the differences uh, when, when someone partners with you? Yeah. Okay. I, I may go on for uh, <laughs> the next hour on that. That's okay. We can always edit. <laughs> <laughs> but let me, um, um, let me begin maybe just with a little bit about, um, you know, how we think about people becoming involved with visual literacy and, and how we create this knowledge base and, and this transition. And then I'll kind of talk about impact as well. Okay. That's but, um, but um, you know, it really begins with, I think, you know, most of us intuitively, when we hear the words visual literacy, we have an idea about what that means because we understand the word visual and we understand the word literacy. But we don't really understand what the two together really mean. So, uh, we conduct workshops, um, and we 90% of the time we're doing those workshops in museums, um, and those core workshops are two days in length, and it's in those workshops that we first of all begin with what is visual literacy, and when we talk about the words visual literacy, what, are we, what do we mean, and, um, <clears throat> and why, do the, why does this matter to us as individuals, because at the end of the day, what this investment that we're making in visual literacy is an investment in our personal ability right. to be able to look at something, be able to see what's there, be able to draw interpretation and be able to take action as a result of that. Um, so 
you know, it's, this isn't about forms and, and that sort of thing. It's about right. how we think. And it's about what we do when we enter the work environment uh, to accomplish what we're going into the work um, environment to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And then sort of the third component of that <clears throat> is once we understand visual literacy and we understand why it matters, we could leave at that point and we'd be stronger as individuals and we'd be better at home as we would be in the workplace. We'd find our car keys. You would find our car <laughs> keys, that's exactly right. But we go a step further and we make that connection between, you know, how does visual literacy matter when right. we're doing hazard recognition? How does visual literacy matter when we're doing incident investigation? Um, and we've done that through a series of modules that we have created Mm -hmm. um, that are largely used by companies as they go into their company deployments. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this call is very uh, timely because we'll be releasing our newest module in the next couple of weeks on serious injury and fatality prevention. Very good. And yeah, and we're real excited about that. Yeah. And, um, um, but it's all about if we can learn to see better, how do we connect it to these processes that are important? Right. And people really, they get it. I mean, they, um, they, they reflect upon their own personal experiences. And, and um, you know, we go through our lives quite a bit looking and immediately drawing interpretation. Yeah. Um, you know, and we used to call it jumping to conclusions. And, right. And uh, it happens to us all the time. And we're all under pressure to get a lot of things done. And the quicker we can get them done, you know, the better. Without uh, a doubt. So, so we go right from looking at something to fully understanding it, knowing it. Right. And a lot of that comes from the fact that, you know, how we think about what it is that we're seeing, because we see with our brain, we don't, our eyes collect the stimulus, but we actually see with our brain. Right. And a lot of that's influenced by our expectations, our experiences, and how those kind of map together into the biases that we have as right. we think about something yeah. and, and, and we're looking to draw interpretation from it. So once you realize that, and that's what the, you know, sort of the workshop format is really focused on, then you have the opportunity to sort of recognize that you can fall into that trap. And then we provide tools and techniques that allow you, and they're, and they're really simple tools and techniques that allow you to break out of that and be able to slow down, first of all, right. and really be able to see what's there and, and, and see what's in front of you. Yeah. Um, so that's the, and the fun thing about the workshops and the thing that it makes this so different for people is that we spend about half of our time in a typ typical classroom, you know, sort of environment. And, um, um, but we spend the other half of our time actually in the galleries and we use works of art and exercises around works of art to be able to teach visual literacy. But then we shift to industrial applications um, in order to be able to practice how we, how we use that. And, um, you know, we can be looking at, um, you know, the architect's dream, a beautiful painting by Thomas Cole in about 1840 at oh, one yeah. moment. And we can be looking at a warehouse photograph the next <laughs> moment, right. taking what we learned in the architect's dream and then being able to apply it to the environments that we're used to. Uh, right. I, I mean, the, it's just, it makes so much sense. Um, and I think the the work you're doing is just absolutely groundbreaking to, to make a difference. Uh, and I had an opportunity to personally experience that at, at one of the Campbell events where, mm -hmm. you know, I have a bit of that art background. And, you know, so the the quick mini training, the sample that we got, um, I, I, I did see a lot in the paintings because I'd looked at those paintings before. And, and so there was one point where I'm like, I got this. And then, you know, when we, when we had the photo of, you know, this, 
this industrial environment and we're now identifying the hazards, it was amazing until I had the rest of the training, how much I missed. So, I mean, I, I personally had a, a brief sample with it. Do you have any stories around uh, maybe the types of, of, you know, employees that come through and maybe some aha moments, uh, you know, from a success perspective that you're particularly uh, proud of or that are particularly memorable because of the difference it made? Yeah, I sure can. And, and, you know, the range of people that come through our workshops, you know, is everything from the frontline worker, mm-hmm. you know, to the, uh, we've had CEOs, you know, that have come through um, our, our two-day workshop or uh, a um, um, modification of that workshop for an executive level team or something like that. So, you know, it kind of goes top to bottom and, right. and, uh, and the content is all the same. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO or you're, you know, the maintenance worker on third shift. I mean, the content that you're going to receive is going to be the same and our focus is going to be the same. I, I think, you know, as you might imagine, there's some people that, you know, they, they show up at a workshop at a museum. They've been asked to attend. Um, you know, they're in a museum, first of all, which is like really bizarre to them. <laughs> no <And> doubt. <laughs> they, they may, you know, they may not be like most of us. I mean, I didn't go to museums, you know, unless there was a, unless there was a reason to be there. Right. Uh, you know, I never spent any of my time in museums until I started to get involved with the visual literacy work. So we have, we get a lot of people that are like that and, and they're a little nervous about it. I mean, this is a totally, you know, foreign environment, environment to them. Right. Um, but it's amazing because, you know, this is a connection that we can make to our personal lives. Yes. And it's amazing how quickly people tell their own stories mm-hmm. about things that have happened in their lives where they missed, you know, something, you know, they, they missed the obvious because, right. you know, they, they're just too used to it. it. It just becomes the norm. And once they realize that that's normal, that that's not, you know, their you know, sort of failure. Uh, it's just the way our brain works and the way that we think and, and the right. typical actions we take that, um, you know, they start to nod their heads and their and arms getting it. You know, un- uncross and, yeah. you know, and all of a sudden we start the exercises and they're, they're headlong into it. That's uh, so it's, it's rare that, that anybody, you know, doesn't enjoy it and also doesn't gain uh, a tremendous amount out of it. Right. And I know, um, you know, I don't know if you have any details to share, but I know you've got, you've got a number of customers who are seeing a difference. Yeah. Uh, could you, could you talk briefly about, you know, once that training is complete and it's now, you know, being used in, in practice on the job every day, what, what happens then? Yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, this is so new that, uh, and one of the things that we're working with the Campbell Institute on is really a quantification Sure. of what wow. impact does visual literacy, you know, have in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have, um, uh, we do have examples and we have pilot studies that have been done, et cetera. And uh, let me, let me give you two data points to kind okay. of have a point of reference to, you know, often uh, someone will ask, well, what role does seeing or the, or the lack of seeing, you know, play in incidents that occur within organizations? And uh, so we, had, we were fortunate to have a data set from one company that was about 17,000 uh, incidents that had occurred over almost 20 years. Okay. Um, and these were all kind of incidents. These were injury incidents. They were near misses. They were property damage. Right. Uh, so they were a wide range of, of incidents. And um, we took that data set and uh, we had a data scientist mm-hmm. uh, go through that data set using tools and capabilities that exist today. 
right. you know, that didn't exist, you know, yes. all, you know, certainly 20 years ago, but right, maybe right. even four or five years ago in some respect. Right. But, you know, he looked at um, the, um, how incidents were described. He looked at the corrective actions that were put mm -hmm. in place um, using these advanced tools. And what he concluded from, from that particular data set was that there was the likelihood that in 24% of the incidents that were in that data set, that seeing played a role. Mm -hmm. It could have been a significant role, it could have been a contributing role, but you know, there was somewhere in that incident where there was evidence that someone missed something. Right. It was right in front of them. They just didn't, didn't see it or they didn't draw an appropriate, you know, sort of interpretation. That, um, that analysis was reinforced by another analysis that was done, not by Cove, but by somebody else. Much, much smaller data set, manual review of the data set, mm -hmm. um, asking basically the same question, and they came up with about 32%. Those are huge so, percentages. Yeah, so those, that, you know, that tells us that we're talking about something yeah. that is not insignificant. You right. know, it's whether the 24 and the 32 are exact or not, who knows. Yeah. But there's a level of materiality here that uh, this is a problem we're solving. Right. Now. So I'll flip to now, you know, what companies have seen, you know, in application. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to talk about it in, in two ways. I'll talk about it qualitatively and okay. I'll talk about it quantitatively. Qualitatively, you know, uh, we survey uh, through the workshops and companies obviously, you know, seek feedback. From the people that participate in the workshops and the qualitative feedback on this is fantastic mm -hmm. um, you know we see um, numbers that are over 90 percent in how people feel about its application to environmental health and safety mm -hmm. and their their willingness to recommend this to a colleague um, so that those are That's two yeah so those are two indicators that people do connect to it and they do see it you know making a difference to them right on the quantitative side um, we've had some pilot studies that companies have undertaken. Uh, the one that I think is the most complete was one of our very early adopters, and that's Cummins. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, did a, uh, they did a pilot study in uh, their Jamestown, New York engine assembly plant, uh, where they took uh, workers from a work cell, they took them through the visual literacy training, um, they went back out into that work cell, and they did hazard hunts, uh, looking for hazards. Yeah. Um, that they hadn't identified before. And they do a really good job of doing a risk score by area. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and as a result of that training and the effort that they went through to go back out and re-examine that area, their risk score went up by 30%. That's and, another huge stat. And, yeah, and most of, of uh, you know, the increase when you look at them, um, they're in the, you know, the normal daily sort yeah. of misses, it's the mm -hmm. things that we become accustomed to. Right. The trip hazards, the sharp edges, the, you know, sort of things that, um, you know, we just walk by, you know, a thousand times before, yeah. you know, we have an experience that, that teaches us that it's there. Right. We've heard other numbers from companies that have done their own, you know, sort of mini pilots that, you know, that either in the number of hazards identified or risk that, you know, is 10%, 15%, you know, upwards right. to that, that 30%. Um, the last point of reference maybe I could make is there was a, there was a study done back in the mid 2000s mm -hmm. um, on the application of visual literacy in the medical field. 
And there were eight medical universities that came together. Harvard was the lead medical institution. Mm -hmm. And um, they came together and they studied what happened if they taught visual literacy skills to one group of residents. And then they maintained a, a, another group of residents as a control group that didn't receive the training. Right. And their quantification was about a 38% increase in observations by the group that had received the visual literacy training. Again. And, um, so. You know, those are those are certainly indicators that this matters and it can have impact. Yeah. And and our, and our goal is, you know, over the over the next year, two, three, you know, as we continue to build uh, more and more application, that we'll be able to do more and more quantification. Yeah. The challenge is uh, as it is with most things, uh, and I'm sure you experience this as well. Right. Is, you know, safety processes are, are big processes. There's a lot of components to them. Mm -hmm. And often, um, they're all changing at the same time. You know, we're investing, you know, in technology to help us. We're, you know, doing a different kind of training on something else. And right. then we have the visual literacy component as well. Yeah. So it's really challenging to kind of just isolate the visual literacy component and say it alone made a difference. Yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't want to say that unless, you know, we could really be definitive that that's true, but we feel that these skills are just part of the overall portfolio of capability that'll yeah. allow us to be successful. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I just, I mean, it is, it is so impactful, just, just the, the data you have so far, and I can't imagine uh, how much more rich that data will get over time. I'm sure it's going to be significant. So switching gears just a little bit, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the new hazards that the entire world has been facing <laughs> over the last uh, many months with, with COVID-19, a whole new set of hazards that have affected every worker in every, every company. Could you, uh, you know, you, I really view you're an expert in hazard recognition, given all the work that you've done. Could you talk a little bit about how you view COVID-19 as a hazard and um, maybe some best practices or, or recommendations or observations that, that you have around that? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're living in an extremely, you know, interesting and challenging and, you know, informative time. There's no, no question about that. And, I, and by no means do I want to underplay uh, the uniqueness of the COVID situation right. and the impact that it's had on so many lives in our country, whether it's, you know, people that have lost their lives as a result or they have, you know, uh, gone through the curve of, of infection and recovery. And I mean, this, this is just a, a terrible situation and I don't want to underplay that. Um, I also think that we can think of the COVID virus as a hazard. I mean, we can think of it as, you know, something that we need to provide protections mm -hmm. uh, around and against. And if we think about it that way, then we can begin to rely upon some of the proven capabilities technologies and approaches that has existed within the safety world for a long time. You know, like the, um, um, like the, um, excuse me, hierarchy of the controls. Right. You know, if, if we think about what we're going to do to protect our people in the workplace, and we think about it in the context of the hierarchy of controls, you know, we're not going to necessarily eliminate, the, we're, we're not going to eliminate the virus by the activities that we do. Right. But we can eliminate the exposures. And some things that we can do to eliminate the exposures, and we're doing these at the at the museum, um, is that we can, um, you know, we can 
closed down areas that really aren't necessary for operation, for example. And then we don't have to worry about cleaning those areas. And we don't need to worry about the procedures and the processes associated with that. Right. So we can kind of narrow the scope of where we need to focus. We can apply engineering level controls mm -hmm. uh, to preventing people from going uh, into certain areas or taking certain actions. Right. Um, we're certainly implementing a lot of administrative related controls. We're also implementing a lot of PPP, uh, PPE, you know, sort of activities just like the whole world is. Right. So if we can think about what we can do consistent with the hierarchy of controls, we can, we can be comfortable that we're doing the things that are most impactful to being able to, uh, you know, protect our people. Right. And in our case, to the museum, visitors to the museum as well. So I think that's one dimension of right. how traditional safety processes, you know, works in this environment as it does in, in other environments. Right. And then, you know, a common question I get is, what's the role of visual literacy? Right. You know, as it relates to, um, you know, the COVID-19 situation. And the way that I think about this is, is simply, you know, we can't see the virus. So it's not like we're missing the virus itself. I mean, right. we, we'll, we can't and we won't see the virus. But what we can see are conditions that may promote the spread of the virus um, um, or even the contamination of, of things that, that can, you know, cause the spread of the virus. So what we're talking about in the museum, and we, and we included visual literacy training in our training around COVID, right. is let's look for the conditions that are important for us uh, in order to be able to prevent the spread. So you know, are people keeping physical distance um, right. as is appropriate? You know, are we completing the uh, checklist associated with, you know, how regularly we might be cleaning and sanitizing? Right. Um, you know, let's use our uh, visual, visual literacy skills to identify unique areas of exposure mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that uh, may be appropriate. So, you know, we won't see the virus, but we can see the conditions right. that we want to make sure that we deal with um, and deal with them effectively. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. It's a, it's certainly a, a tough time and, uh, you know, we're going to continue dealing with those hazards for, uh, for the foreseeable future at this point. Um, so important to have, uh, have that view on it being just, it, it is just another hazard, a, a different type, but it is hazard. Well, last kind of last question uh, that I that I want to ask you is really around kind of your vision and, and wish list for the future. I know there are you know we all wish a world where there are zero incidents. Uh, we we'd like to get there, and uh, you know even the National Safety Council has a new effort toward that, working towards zero. Um, what would be on kind of your wish list for? Uh, where you'd like safety technology or solutions that would help support that move to zero, where would you like to see things uh, go? And would you mind sharing some of those ideas? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I wish I was all seeing here and could, you know, <laughs> pick winners and all, all those sort of things in terms of, you know, what, what I think will matter, you know, as we go forward. But, you know, I, I, I kind of think about it in, in maybe a couple different ways. I think, you know, we're seeing you know, the emphasis of a lot of technology kind of solutions, mm -hmm. but we haven't necessarily seen them at scale yet. So, you know, if I was to wave a magic wand, I think, you know, some of the things that, that we're seeing, if we could find ways to do two things, number one, 
make them cost effective that allows them to scale. And I know that's a little chicken and egg, you know, the more things scale, the cheaper they get. Yeah. But, um, you know, if we can find a way to um, cause that to happen, I think the more scale that develops, then the more opportunity there is to have positive impact, but also the opportunity to get feedback. Right. And, and to, you know, get continuous improvement going in, in what those applications are. Um, and you see that, I think, in some of the, the uh, training spaces mm -hmm. as well, you know, virtual reality, uh, you know, putting the goggles on and being yeah. able to see the environment and everything else. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a fantastic, you know, tool. Yeah. Um, but it just has to get to scale, you know, to be able to have, you know, impact. I, I'm really interested in sensor technology. Mm -hmm. And um, as a means to be able to not only collect data, but also to be able to inform, you know, people that um, uh, individuals that they may be working under a situation where the risk profile has changed. Right. And they need to be able to recognize that. Right. Um, you know, a very simple example of, uh, you know, some, it's a, you know, sort of a low end form of sensor technology in one way. But um, there's a museum that reopened in Italy, and there's probably many more than that. This is just the one that I, I read about. And everyone going through the museum receives a pendant, and that pendant um, basically alarms if they get more than get, get closer than six feet right. from someone. So you know, it's a way to use technology to be be able to help you know remind people you know what it is that, that we're wanting them to do. Right. The the third thing that that I would throw out there is that we all know the most effective controls we can have in, in place are engineering level controls. Mm -hmm. So how we can leverage technology in order to be able to advance engineering level controls that protects our people from mm -hmm. the hazard that's, right. you know, you know, in multiple layers all the time, 24 seven, yeah. you know, uh, um, you know, will, will matter so much and especially in the serious injury and fatality you know, area. Right. And then, and then the last thing is just data analytics in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the role, the ability to collect data mm -hmm. and the ability to, to draw insight from that to lead to action, you know, has never been stronger, Right. can be stronger yet. Yeah. So, you know, the, the analytics component of um, collecting information, collecting data and being able to understand what it means and then quickly, yeah. turn it back into action, yeah. um, you know, is, is where it's at. So. No, that's great. Uh, thank, thank you so much for the comprehensive answer. I think, you know, we're, we've got a long way to go, lots to do, I think to, to really advance, uh, to get to zero and uh, so, so much opportunity um, from, from our vision at Anvil. I mean, that's what we're about. It's about, you know, mm -hmm. one small slice of that on how we could help that frontline worker. Uh, but, but, couldn't be more passionate about, um, you know, how do we get there and, and how, how can we advance that and how can we innovate better, faster, more and agree with you a thousand percent on the data. Um, you know, being able to do something um, insightful with that data, all the different types of data. And, uh, you know, we're, we're sitting on uh, wonderful information that if we can turn it quickly, can we can make a difference. So, yeah. And Robin, I, you know, I really compliment, uh, you know, through the experiences that we've had together. I really compliment the thought leadership that your organization is bringing to this space and, and how you're thinking about, um, you know, being that connecting point between, you know, the realities of what's happening in, in the working world and being able to bring that together in a way that we can understand that and take action as a result. 
whether it's, you know, simply compliance or it's something much, much bigger than that. Right. Uh, you know, keep up the great work there. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, I can't thank you enough for the time today. Uh, have immensely enjoyed our talk today. I always enjoy talking to you. Uh, lots of, I always learn something new and take something away. So thank you so much uh, again for joining us today. Uh, appreciate it and look forward to talking to you, to you in the future. Sounds good, Robin. Stay safe and healthy.